Hey guys, I'm Jordan Rowling, host and producer of Billboard News. And I'm Gail Mitchell, Billboard's executive director of R&B and Hip Hop. And this is In The Lead, a Billboard and Honda Stage podcast series where we talk to some of music's most influential female changemakers. In each episode, our guests will discuss their path to success, the obstacles they overcame along the way, and how they continue to pay it forward. Today, we're excited to be sitting down with Felicia Fant, co-head of Urban Music at Columbia Records. Over the course of a career that spans nearly two decades, Felicia has established herself as one of the preeminent public relations and marketing executives in the music industry. Her work with Prince, Andre Day, Kid Cudi, BB Rexa, Luis Fonsi, Daniel Caesar, and more. Felicia, thank you so much for joining Gail and I on the podcast. It's like such an honor to have you on. I am so excited to be here. Trust me on that. Gail Mitchell was the epitome of the first call I had to make when I was officially able to pitch. And Serena Gallagher, who was my boss at the time, said, It's time. I'm like, time for what? For you to call Gail Mitchell. And I was like, <gasps> Okay. <laughs> so this is a big deal for me. I do mean that from the bottom of my heart. Oh, well, vice versa. But you and I have both held each other's hands over these last many years. Yes, so. yes, yes. I appreciate you tremendously. I also feel honored to be hosting this podcast with Gail. So I, I didn't want to leave that out as well. Just to be in the space with you two, you guys are what I aspire to be like. And so it's just amazing to be able to hold that space with you. Thank you, Jordan. Now you're going to make me cry and get sentimental early on. Like, this is just too much already. <laughs> we always like to start off by, you know, simply asking, like, how are you? these days. Obviously, a lot is going on in the world um, with social justice issues politically, and obviously, we have a pandemic raging. So how are you these days? Okay, so I feel like that roller coaster is really real, you know, but I think that the roller coaster will probably remain for some time. But I don't think that this industry lends for a non-roller coaster type lifestyle. I think it's the extra things that have been added on that make it a little bit more, I would say, added pressure is the word I want to say. And even that pressure in the sense of feeling like you can't get through it, just being more aware of your space every single day. And I think that with the pandemic happening, you had to figure out how to be there for other people, but learn how to be there for yourself. And through this process, that has been something that I really started to focus on. Um, it's easy to say, oh, you're going to work out or hop on that Peloton because it sounds cute, but it's really not that easy. It's so easy to sit on the couch and just lay back and be like, finally, this day is over. But I made a point to train in the park with some really great girlfriends and we um, hold each other accountable. And I think that what has happened through this process is finding ways to hold yourself accountable for making sure that you present your best self at all times. Well, I mean, obviously we know music can be quite healing. Are you, is there anything on your playlist that's kind of been helping you push through those workouts or just push through the day in general? You know, during non-workouts, I am an R&B old school head. All right. And I think that again, with this, you kind of go into discovery mode. So it's a range from Nina Simone to Amy Winehouse to Erica Badu to Mariah Carey to, I'm talking Vision of Love, Mariah Carey. Just finding those things that make you remember how good it is to hear a great song. But I will not be remiss to say I'm from Marietta, Georgia, which makes me adjacent to Atlanta, Georgia. And I will always love a song that gets me hype. So if the right Waka Flocka song comes on, if the right Outkast song comes on, or right Goody Mob song comes on, you will probably see a twerk that is still left in my bottom <laughs> hip that might just exert itself when you least expect it. But I am that person. So I will always be a little bit ratchet Southern, you know? That, that's great. That works. <laughs> and, 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 and the whole Nina Simone, I just love that part too. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. good for you. But speaking of, of being near Atlanta and, and 
such a prolific hotspot for music, but talk a little bit about your beginnings. You were born in Charleston, South Carolina. Mm -hmm. Talk about that transition there, growing up there. If you came from a musical family, how that all tied in and led to your uh, moving to uh, Georgia and all that. Yeah, I think my parents moved when I was five. So I will always claim Georgia, um, Charleston, South Carolina, of course. And I haven't actually been back since I was born. My parents to go there for their honeymoon Hilton Head moments, but I have not been. But moved there at five. You know, of course, we did the choir because that's where they never say no to you when you're a child. Like everyone can join the choir. I was probably alto to almost tenor. I cannot hold a note to save my life. But I would say 1996 is when the Olympics came to Georgia. So of course you're doing the gentrification that came from the Olympics and how the city was reborn, if you wanna say that. But also you have LaFace Records. So Outkast, Goody Mob, TLC, you could not escape the music business. However, upon entering Spelman College in 1996, there was not this thing that said you were going to be in the music business. It really was just that I am following his legacy. Um, my mother went to Spelman. She pledged at Spelman. Shout out Delta Sigma Theta sorority. And I knew that this was a footstep that I wanted to follow in because I wanted to see what it was like to have a legacy and build one. I think as a person of color, you do not always know where you come from. You don't know the lineage that makes you who you are. So this was a way for me to start that chapter of legacy. However, getting on campus was like, okay, I'm an English major, but I don't want to be a lawyer. I don't want to be a teacher. So that moment happened when I was in the cafeteria and it said, looking for English and journalism majors for a publicity job at CNN. And I felt like I fainted. I felt like that moment where something comes out of your body, you were like, this is it. This is something. What is this? So I landed the job with another um, classmate in my English class to be a PR intern at CNN. And from that moment, you know, now I'm traveling to Atlanta. I'm seeing the senior building. I'm meeting Ted Turner, but I'm also seeing Miss Clayton. And Miss Clayton is the first Black woman to kind of hold suit. She had an office. This was the woman who founded the Trumpet Awards. And I'm seeing entertainment in front of me. So I knew there was something that kind of clicked, but I still didn't know the answer until my second internship, which I will not say the corporation, because I think it's important to not put people's business out there. But in that moment at that internship, I was kind of picked on, and I want to be very transparent in this conversation, I was picked on for my hair. The other person who had landed the internship with me was a woman of lighter complexion um, and a different hair texture. And the boss at the time made a point to, to point out my hair and my attire. And I remember coming back home to my parents and I said, you know what, no matter what I do, I will not be in a job that defines me by how I look and I no longer want to wear a suit again. So I looked at my gray Benetton suit, my gray Navy suit, and I'm like, this is it. I will not have a job that requires me to wear a suit. And I don't know where that hit. And you can ask my mom to that day, but I just kind of sat on my bed with this like frustration. And from that frustration, I heard about the street teams in Atlanta, Midnight Marauders, um, Philana Williams started a street team. And I'm like, okay, let's start the street team because I can get in the club for free. I can, you know, help my girls get in the club for free. We can kick it. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to join the street team and we are going to get lit. So Club Karma, I remember the first day Dallas Austin rolled up to our party. I was like, guys, this is Dallas Austin outside. And do you see his G-Wagon? Like, what is that anyway? Because I've never seen the G-Wagon, but I'm like, this is Dallas Austin. He's coming to our party. So clearly we're doing something. So I just, I would say I got nosy. I got curious. And so of course, LaFace Records was the goal. I would call every day, and I think that's what you thought you could do. You could just keep calling every single day, and someone would finally pick up and say, okay, you can be an intern. That didn't happen, but I did hear about this woman, Shanti Das. And so I kept looking for her, kept trying to find her and figure out, okay, 
who is Shanti Das and how do I get to her? And I still didn't get to her until years later, but I got an internship at the local radio station. And I was the entertainment intern with my best friend and we worked under Shaka Zulu and Chris Lover Lover before he was ludicrous. And the first group to walk into the radio station on my second day was Destiny's Child. Ah. That was it. I was like, oh, this is it. I have found my calling. What's next? And I heard everybody was moving to New York. So I'm like, okay, then I'm going to move to New York. And I didn't know because I had a year left in college, but I knew no matter what, the goal now was to get myself to New York because that was the great migration of all the executives that were doing everything when the face was plucked for all its success. And that's where I was going to go. Zerona Clayton, right? Zerona Clayton, yes. Zerona Clayton. Miss Zerona, the Queen Clayton. Almost like not surprising as a black woman to be what discriminated against for your hair. Like, Mm -hmm. I I just, I think about my own experiences too. Like I've had, my hair is obviously different than yours, but I've had uh, discrimination just for not having my hair blown out. Like, cause I'm an Mm on-camera personality. Mm -hmm. I had an agent one time that was like, you know, you can't wear your hair like that if GMA were to call you. And isn't that so fascinating that as black women, it's like you're used to having that happen. Yes, and it's, and it's more than, it's more often than none. But I think that that conversation, that moment of pain and frustration is also, again, made me a better executive. So then I get a woman of a color as a client. I'm very careful to make sure that she feels her best and that she has a team around her that understands her needs as it relates to beauty and skincare and hair texture and making sure that person understands what she needs to feel her best self. So those lessons help you later and they get you stronger and prepare you for the next generation of people who need you to have their backs. You know, you went from CNN and then you, you know, had that interest in LaFace and then you heard, you know, New York was the buzz. How did you end up at Universal Music Group? This is a great story too. So (laughs) I was, my last job in Atlanta was working for my pro fight. She was head of, um, I guess, kind of development for Vander Holyfield. So she told me that I could help her out and do events. And I met this woman who said she had a PR firm in New York. So I told my mom and dad, I found someone. They were like, it's not a company though. Don't you want to be like MTV or, you know, anything that has a corporation behind it? I'm like, look guys, New York, I know what I'm doing. They have a lot of little boutique places and you guys just let me go. And she's paying me what everyone else is getting paid because my roommate at the time who had already had a job in New York was working at a modeling agency and she was making about $27,000 a year. So I knew if I could make that, that was great. So that was entry level and I think it might still be. But anyway, I um, took that job and eight weeks later, it went defunct. It went defunct. The company no longer existed. And I was like, oh God, I cannot move back to New York. What am I gonna do? But at the time, Um, My roommate and I were still living with her parents in Westchester. So I would travel into the city every morning with her and go to the coffee shop. And so I just started looking at temp agencies. I was like, I got to figure it out. You know, a deco finally called me back and they kept placing me in PR jobs. It was pharmaceutical PR and things. I'm like, hey guys, entertainment PR, please not pharmaceutical PR. And then I Googled the top black publicist, period. And the name that came up was Terry Williams. And so I, again, being, I won't use the word naive. I think just like, I got to figure it out. Found her address, knocked on her door. Her assistant answered and I said, hi, I would like to work for Terry Williams. And she stared at me and Terry Williams came to the door and she let me in. And she talked to me about what I wanted to do. I gave her my background of Spelman and everything else. And she wrote me a letter after a week of interning for her. And she gave me this painting. So I took this (laughs) painting and this letter in the book called A Personal Touch, which meant that when you're gonna meet people, find ways to connect to them in personal ways. Um, That was her book. And I went about my business and back to that coffee shop, still with no job. But then one weird day, this man walked in and he was like, "Um, I see you here every day. And I'm like, 
I hope he's not trying to holler at me because I'm not trying to talk to him. I'm trying to get this job. And he's like, what do you want to do? I'm like, I want to be in the music business or entertainment, you know, something. And he was like, well, I know someone at Universal Records. And I'm like, I have applied to Universal Records at least 10 times. They are not paying attention because again, that's just what you think you're supposed to do. You're supposed to keep faxing your resume. And I did say fax, fax your resume to these places and they will call you back. And so he finally sent it. And I would say about two weeks later, I got a call from two places. Adeco finally got me placed at New Line Cinema. So I was at New Line Cinema um, two days a week at that time. And it was the Lord of the Rings trilogy that I was working on as a PR intern, assistant, whatever temp. And then Universal finally called me back and they said, Katina Bynum received your resume. And Kadena Bynum took my resume to HR. I had not known this woman, but this guy, he clearly knew her. And I was able to get my first interview at Universal. And I did not get the job immediately as a PR assistant. I actually started as a temp, as I mentioned. So I was tipping everywhere. I attempted in the sales department. I attempted in the radio department. I attempted wherever someone would take me. And I would write them notes to say, please hire me back. Because the rule was if you could get in the building, you could stay in the building. I was also, I was also Monty Lippman's second assistant. And second assistant means you do not sit near him. You sit in a room some far, far away, you answer the phone, you then call the first assistant who calls him. So that was my kind of matriculation to the building, but I learned about the different processes and again, how the industry worked and that this CD that had 1755 Broadway on it, this was actually a place. It was not just where CDs were made, it's where music was um, marketed. It was where it was thought, it was where people found their energy. And so I, about a month after temping, heard that the PR position was going to come open. And they said, Serena Gallagher would be your boss, but she is in LA for the Grammys. So you will continue to temper her desk until she gets back. And so I said, great, you know, I'm going to get this right. You know, we're going to figure this out. And we finally met. And at that point, my suits were gone because I don't know what it was, but I was in the building and I saw that people weren't wearing suits. It was more of a, you know, a culture, a vibe. And she set me down because at that time I also used to match my eyeliner to what every outfit I had on. So as you see me in orange, I would have probably had orange eyeliner. I don't know what I thought I was doing, but I thought it was lit. Okay. And so she brought me in the office and she said, look, I, I really like your energy. But I want to make sure you know what this is and that you're here for the right reasons and that, you know, interns and temps and assistants come and go. But if you're serious, I'm going to give you this opportunity. I said that please do not take my attire for anything but being charismatic and passionate. And I don't want to be put in a box for how I express myself. And she heard me loud and clear. And then I was hired full time as her PR assistant. Wow. Was Serena at Motown at the time? Is Serena this Gallagher. This is Motown. So Universal Motown, Universal Music Group, and Motown was my first PR official job, but I was temping within the systems of Universal and Motown before becoming the PR assistant under Kadar Massenberg, who was the founder of Neo Soul. So what was the first major project that you led on? Yes, leading. So I definitely was doing the tour press thing, you know, so that was 702, that was Brian McKnight, that was India Irie. Um, you know, all the, like I said, Neo Soul was, was everything to Kadar. But the first project I led on was JoJo. That was the first project that became my own because um, at the time, I remember going to get my nails done. I had left the office really quickly because my boss, Serena, had an annual holiday and I knew she would not be in the office that day. So I knew that I could get all my packages together, um, get all the pink slips ready because, you know, you have to actually write and handwrite messaging packages to get to all the various, you know, outlets to make sure Gail Mitchell got the package so she could review it on time and do not mess up this package to Gail Mitchell, girl. And so I got a call from her. And she had told me that she had been um, diagnosed with breast cancer. 
And I thought she was calling me to reprimand me for leaving, but I just started crying. And she said, you know what, you're going to be okay. But what I'm doing is I, I've heard you loud and clear, and I don't want to box you in. And I know what it's like to be a Black publicist. And I know that as you have your growth in this business, people will try to put you in a box based on what you look like. And I don't want to do that to you. So I'm giving you JoJo because I believe in you. And I think that you will be the person that can break her. And that is how I got JoJo. You did a great job because I remember JoJo was everything when yeah, she popped up. Yeah, so Leave Get Out whenever that was, but that was the song that broke her. But she was also 13 and she's also soulful. And so every TV show that probably doesn't exist now from Ryan Seacrest to Sharon Osbourne, all these shows, what book her, you know, she had. But what made her unique is that she was also opening doors for me because I was going in rooms that I normally wouldn't be in. This was Fashion Week. This was, you know, her getting the candy PSA. Like it was all these various things that showed me that it was more than music but brand development for her. And I was able to see that because of the opportunities that were given to her, not just because she was, you know, white. And I'm going to be very clear about that. JoJo was a great singer, but because of her age, because of her being this anomaly, I was able to go in rooms that actually pushed and motivated me to be a better publicist. And I was traveling and being in rooms at a younger age than most people. Like specifically, why was publicity the aspect of the industry that you gravitated towards? Um, you know, I still was an English major and writing minor, so there's still the idea of storytelling. And to this day, I think storytelling is still the number one marketing play. You know, there's different aspects, but everything has to be led with a story, which is why we call people like Gail First, um, Nakesa Moody, all the people that I have relied on to make sure that they will give us a story that needs to be said. It's, it's the context. You can have a bio, but that's one thing. It's the story. It's the narrative. It's it's the beginning of what are we saying and doing to make sure that people pay attention? What makes them different? What makes them stand out? What is that little antidote that's going to make people feel like, oh, I should be invested? So I think knowing that I've always cared about storytelling and, you know, had an affinity for film as well and still do, because I recently did a documentary with one of my pro fights as well that we could talk about. But I um, always, always have cared about what the headline is. And I think that's how I was trained. Like, what is the headline going to say? How are you going to make people pay attention? So what is going to be in that short part of this press release that is going to make people click on? Because you're not the only person. They're getting 10,000 emails a day from every publicist and every angle and agents and everything else. So why will you stand out? So writing to me has always been something. And so the fact that I could take writing and now make it a career and also communicate with people, which I feel like I love to do, this was to me a full circle conversation and thought. Well, I mean, you were at Universal for 10 years and then you eventually ended up at Warner. What made you decide to make that move? You know, it's it's anything in life. You reach the proverbial ceiling, you know, and when you feel like you've reached your ceiling, it's, it's time to manifest change. But also I had had 10 years in New York and I felt like I understood the writers there. I, I was able to witness Fashion Week, Fashion Week at its peak at Bryant Park, but there was something about the film industry that kept calling my name and it was because I was working with talent that was also getting calls for film, if that makes sense. Like if you think about Jill Scott and her TV show when she was a detective or Common being in all these movies or even the last project I worked in before leaving Universal was Kid Cudi and he had his show How to Make It in America. What you start to see is that artists evolve and you want it to evolve too. So I wanted to see how I could be part of this evolution of artist identity. You know, artists probably I would say the 360 deal that came into the music the music industry brought that conversation. You know, you see people like Lady Gaga and all these people who took the 360 deal to another level because of what they were exposed to, because they were getting brand endorsements, because they were getting 
movie roles. So for me, I'm nosy, as I said. So I want to know, well, who is the person that is helping with brand deals? Who is the person that is putting them in movies? You know, like, how am I going to be a part of this conversation beyond just press? So the opportunity to move to L.A., wasn't that I knew all those things were happening, but I felt like I would be in different rooms if I took this chance. And for me, it was time to expand my territory. So when I got the opportunity to do that with the chance meeting that I had with Lyra Cohen at a football game that led to me meeting um, Todd Maskowitz, I took that opportunity and I said, you know what, I'm going to pack my bags. And on and August 11th, 2011, I moved to LA. What's the project you're most proud of while you were doing it? It was what, seven years at, at Warner? Seven years at Warner. I mean, I, I have to put Prince there, you know, Prince oh. was, Prince came back home, you know, and I was part of him coming back home and I was, you know, with Yvette Nolsher at SNL and we did the after party and Prince is talking to me and saying, call Q-Tip and call, you know, Quest Love. And, you know, at this time, DJ Kiss is DJing the party. I'm like, with Legendary Damon, I'm like, oh my gosh, hey Prince. <laughs> and I had met him before during the 3121 album with Serena. So this was not the first time that I worked with Prince, but this was just like, he's home. I'm at Warner, this is great. But then after that, I would say Andrew Day. This was a song that, that worked differently. It wasn't a song, Rise Up, that necessarily was quote unquote radio friendly, but the conversation around the song was about hope and it was about change. It was about making a difference. And the song penetrated culture um, in a way you could not fathom. That made that song, you know, almost a supernova. I remember meeting Mara Baka Kill um, at an event and she actually walked up to me because we were the only women of color in the room. She's like, hey, other women of color in the room. And I was like, this is Mara Brocky Kill. And she's like, hey, I'm working on the show, Being Mary Jane. Um, what do you do? And I'm like, I work at Warner. And I have plenty of artists that I would love to have, you know, featured within your show. And she was like, well, send me stuff. So I sent her Andrew Day, Gary Clark Jr., and Leanne LaHavis. But that was how that relationship came to be. But what we saw was this song kept making it in the circles from, from ACLU to even the um, Democratic National Convention. And that was, you know, Hillary's song. She came out to rise up. So you just saw that a song can actually change the culture and context of how people see things, how people feel about certain things. And that was an exciting project. Plus, Andrea is just, you know, a fantastic human being. And I am happy to see where her career is going. And now she will be the star of the Billie Holiday film, which I'm sure you all know is coming out, um, directed by Lee Daniels. Mm -hmm. But I would say, you know, that was something that was, that was sisterhood. That's that moment where you, where you see something and you dig deep and you become a better person by working certain artists. And she was someone who helped me become a better person. Before we continue on, it's time for a quick word from our sponsor, Honda Stage. Honda Stage is where Honda's passion for music comes to life and where the industry's most exciting rising stars share their talent and stories of imagination and determination with the world. Head to billboard.com slash Honda Stage to check out more exciting content, including exclusive performances from music's hottest rising stars and new episodes of the In The Lead podcast. I mean, you were at Warner for those seven years and then, you know, now currently you're at Columbia and your, your exact title, your co-head of urban music, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why, why do you think that, or if it was, was that like a, a position that you felt was super significant and finally you were getting recognition you deserved? Well, I think in my last two years at Warner, um, when Livia Tortelli was the president, or maybe last three, something around that, again, the time, the time and block stamps are not here in my head, but Livia saw that I was definitely a publicist, but she said it was like, I'm sorry, she saw that I was definitely a publicist, but she also saw that I had this 
this, what she would say, marketing brain, but also she liked the way I moved in culture. She thought that I found really unique opportunities for artists because I was so in it, or really what we would call outside. And so she asked me to bring some of those thoughts to the entire roster. Because again, I was never just in the urban team. You know, when I was at Universal, I was working with Three Doors Down and, you know, Godsmack, whether it was Tour Press or whatever, Lindsay Lohan, I was never just one, one, one type of genre. So I think she saw that in me and wanted to make sure, again, that I wasn't pigeonholed to something. So she's like, let's figure out how to expand your talent. Um, what, what, what can we do to make your title more inclusive of who I think you are? Because um, you're a multi-hyphenate. And so she added lifestyle marketing to my title. And so with lifestyle marketing and PR, I was now kind of seeing things a little bit differently and being opened up to more departments. So I feel like with co-head of Urban at Columbia, Ron saw that as well. He saw this, this person who did not want to be necessarily in a box, but wanted to take all the context and the combination of my industry experience into one place and be able to make the call to said TV producer, you know, said DSP, said writer, said whoever, as long as it's magnifying the bigger purpose. Um, and I think that is, you know, a model that a lot of people have to be used to, that a lot of executives are not one thing. And so it's really great when you can find leaders who, who see that and who push that out of you so that you can really be the best person for not only yourself, but for the company. Well, what have you learned? It's been, you're coming up on a year in that position. What have you learned about yourself that you didn't know? I mean, I'm learning things about you now that I, <laughs> that I didn't know despite our long uh, uh, association and friendship. But um, you've got a, a great hustle that people can love and appreciate. But again, with what's going on, especially in the wake of Blackout Tuesday, June 2nd, and the call to end the systemic bias that's going mm -hmm. throughout the industry, just what signal does this send when you were named co-head of Urban Music there at Columbia? And the signal is still responsibility because we still have a long way to go. You know, we still have a lot of executives of color who want to make it to the C-suite. You know, I work for Sylvia Roan. I work for Shanti Das, you know, and that is is a big deal that the people that I have looked up to since I was on my you know initial journey, um, I eventually worked for. And while that's great, you want to hope that that does not stop. So I think with this awakening, um, this reminder that there still needs to be a level playing field presented, this is what has awoken in me that that I still have a responsibility to see the next generation of executives of color um, get an opportunity to make it to the C-suite and make it in this industry the way they want to be seen. I know we talked about the word urban and, you know, I will always be black. I present black. I show up black. My hair is going to change. So, so if that's how you're defining urban, great. But what we don't want to happen is that urban means that you are landlocked. We do not want to be boxed in because of that. So I think it's less about the title for me and more about will I be able to see the the evolution and will I be a part of that change? And will I be able to reach those levels that, you know, my foremothers and fathers have met and I guess paved the way for because people will just see me as a great executive. So that is what you want. And that is what I want for the future that's coming in for them to be able to come in and, you know, create their own narrative, create their own experience based on what they love not only because of what they look like, but because they're great at it and that they will be seen as just great executives who happen to be also of color, not color first. 
That's what we're trying to get out of the equation, how you see me and how you read me and how you experience me. In the middle of a pandemic, you still have, uh, it's still work as usual. It has mm-hmm. been. Mm-hmm. I know part of your roster, and you can go uh, mention any more names you want to, but I know you have Little Nas X, mm-hmm. Raphael Sadiq, Pharrell, Chloe and Holly, their Polo G, Little TJ. Just how do you determine your approach? Because all those are just very different personalities. How do you determine your approach in helping them develop their brand when you first begin working with them? Yeah, and I think developing the brand goes back to the story. And I think the word I love to use that I will continue to use is humanization. Before you can really dive into a project, you have to understand that they're human, you know, and that this is a person who breathes and lives and has emotion. You're not just working the song. The song, of course, is how you, you know, develop a marketing idea or how you promote something. But to properly promote them and to properly understand said artist, you have to talk to them, you have to communicate, but you have to pull back the layers of what they want to do and what they want to be, you know, and really find out what their insecurities are, you know, what their passions are, um, what their home life is like, you know, Um, all those things are effective in figuring out how to bring the best out of that person. And so before I can be my best self with an artist, I want to get to know them, you know, and it's not always easy, you know, it takes time, it takes, it takes trust and trust over time, you know, normally happens because you're with them more. And within this pandemic, you don't have that same ability to be in someone's face, seeing them get off the stage for the first time for their big performance and all those moments that start to create that gel and that glue that lets them know, like, I'm here for you. But you can't let that go either. You have to figure out ways to pick up the phone, figure out ways to create these Zoom moments and figure out ways to, again, look for what makes them tick outside of music? What is really making them want to do this? What story are they really trying to tell and convey? What is the subculture of the artist? When I say subculture, what are the things that they collect? What are the things that, you know, make them happy? What are they watching on TV? You know, what is this anecdotal story about their parents or their brother and sister that that makes them different from someone else. And I think if you can find those things, then you really start to bring out the texture and the complexion of an artist. And you start to figure out how you can develop a better fan because the fan wants the artist. They love the music, but they stick around because they want to feel like they're part of this person's family. And I feel like the artists that I do best with, I feel like I'm part of their family. I feel like I'm part of the conversation. And the more I can spend time with them and hear about their vision, the better I can relay that to my counterparts, and then we can all work together to to be the best team for that artist. Now, as Gail said, we're in a pandemic, so we've gone from like live concerts to live streaming. Has your approach to developing an artist's brand evolved or changed over the years, or is it pretty much a, like a streamlined process regardless of, of how the industry evolves? I feel like nothing is streamlined. I think that, you know, no artist is the same. No one is a monolith. You know, you have to really figure out the DNA of an artist and what's going to make them work. My approach won't change because I, I care about the humanization in general. And I think I can go back to Terry Williams when she said a personal touch. And that goes with not just the artist. It goes with, you know, writers. It goes with producers. It goes with anybody, anybody that I'm working with to give the best option and playing field for my artist has to do with the team around it. Team, of course, are the people that you work with at the label, but it's also the team of people that believe in your conversation and believe in your passion. So the team member is you, the team member is Gail, the team member is the booker, the team member is the clothing designer, the team member is the makeup artist. It's all the people that 
you have to have a human touch with and you guys have to talk and you have to ideate and you have to maybe even fight a little bit until you get the vision right. Going back to Blackout Tuesday, the call to end, everybody remembers the summer, George Floyd, Breonna. <laughs> yes, yes, we will never forget it. went on, yeah. So the fight for social justice in society at large, and then you have Brianna Anjumanj and Jamila Thomas come out with um, Blackout Tuesday and show must be paused. Young and fearless. Y'all better Young go. Young and fearless, uh, just like you. Thank you. As that <laughs> fight continues for racial and social justice, what initiatives does the industry need to start working on or, or pushing more forward on in terms of ending systemic bias in the hallways there and then in society at large? I think to change, of course, that's micro and macro, but you have to change where you sit. And you know, where we sit is Columbia Records. That's where I sit every single day. And I think that we, we did a great job in, of course, leading that initiative in that conversation. You know, Ron was the first, Ron Perry, my chairman, was the first to post about the fact that we need to stand behind the artists. But we also made a point to make sure that we were more than a post you know, um, and that we did the work. But we also had to take a step back and recognize that a lot of people were hurting. Um, a lot of people were confused and in pain. And so the senior team brought in Benjamin Crump and we brought in a sensitivity trainer to first talk as human beings. We had to first get to know each other. I think often in corporations, you're working for the greater good of an artist, but you're not necessarily knowing who sits beside you. So we did a we dived in and pulled back the curtain in one layer to say, you know what, if we're going to really work together and change this company for the best, let's, let's start there. So we um, started with various, you know, breakouts with different affinity groups to really talk about what we were going through. And after we got through that part, we really said, okay, now that we have at least gotten to know each other and um, understand how we tick as a label, let's work on what initiatives really we need to focus on. And let's think about it based on the artists that we have signed to our label. So it was, you know, artist development. It is financial literacy. It is making sure that mental health is at the forefront, you know, but it's, it's also figuring out, you know, what do these artists care about? So we made sure that not only are we donating money based on what we were able to do with the funds that were given to us, but what do the artists care about? What do, what do they need to see happen to let them know they have a true team behind them? But, and then taking one step further to say, now that we have thought about the artists, what do we as employees want to see? Because there's a lot of charities out there and organizations that need help, but you can't keep donating to the same ones. So we, we got together and put together a task force of about 35 people from across the label and from across levels. So it's not just all senior leaders with these decisions. It's, it's junior staff, it's, it's um, entry level, it's everyone coming together to say, if we're going to really work on changing the culture, we can't look at the macro right now, we need to look at the micro and see if we're doing the right things internally. And I think that has been probably one of the best things for me to see and to see the involvement and see the passions of some of the younger leaders in the company that you might not have known about and the different organizations that, again, maybe I'd not have heard of. You know, when you're at certain levels, you hear about City of Hope, you hear about Music Cares, which I love. Um, but you, you also don't hear about, you know, youth organizations and, you know, different things that, again, are not on your radar. So this allowed everyone to put all of their thoughts on paper and everyone talk as a group and say, tell me why you care about this organization. And once it was vetted, once everyone understood, it was a list. And I can say now, and proudly, we've um, given to more than 40 organizations, you know, in this period of time. And that's just Columbia. And Sony, of course, is doing everything. We have a great team with Tawala May Austin, who leads the philanthropy division. But 
what it really did for me was was open my eyes to see that this next generation really is is different and they are non-biased in a lot of ways and and they want to be the change they want to be able to have a voice and to the point of fearlessness because they are not i don't want to use the word program because i don't think we're programmed but because they haven't seen so many structures and because they're not in a certain type of structure right now they are they're able to to be outspoken and force us to to look at things from a different lens so i'm really proud to say that i'm part of a corporation but also part of a team at columbia that said everyone gets a voice everyone gets to make a decision everybody's organization matters and let's let's talk about it as a team and figure out how we can do our best to affect social change level the playing field, recruit from, you know, HBCUs and different schools. Again, shout out HBCUs. And again, we love everyone, but even just organizations, making sure everyone understands that if we're really going to see change, we have to really believe and know the playing field is in no way level. And if you cannot see that and believe it, then you are the problem. So to not be the problem, you have to, to take those blinders off and recognize for us to really um, improve these situations and really rid the systematic oppression that has plagued us for so long, we have to give everybody a start from the same line. Exactly. You talked about, you know, some of the stuff Columbia is doing, obviously. How are you personally leveraging your platform? I know that, you know, you know, you proudly shout out HBCUs and Spelman where you went and you did found the Spelman College Arts and Entertainment Summit, right? Yes, I did. I, again, did not know those jobs existed. So we wanted to make sure that the future generation of Spelmanites knew these jobs existed. So we came back. 17 of us got together and we put together a summit from, you know, the different aspects of how we saw the business, whether it was film, whether it's fashion, music sports and entertainment the legal side of it entertainment law we came back and we did courses with everyone and they let and we let them talk to us and we brought in people like spotify majima called her she went to clark atlanta and she sponsored one of our summits you know hbo we were like these jobs exist and they matter there are non-traditional jobs that people of color need to take so we need to make sure they're prepared for all of them so that was a really big step for us in the right direction to let people know that these jobs mattered and that we saw them and we heard them and that we wanted them to to know that they had people in these positions that they could talk to and get advice from. Between that, I'm, I'm on a lot of boards. You know, I recently joined Music Cares Board. I recently joined the Recording Academy Board, the Black Music Collective. I mentor for Ween. I mentor for Heather Laurie's. She just started Next Gen Femme, you know. So I think between those things, like, it's a conversation of giving back, you know, and that's not all. But I think that between giving back, um, mentoring, but also speaking at various colleges. I speak at Syracuse. Often I speak at NYU, I speak at Stanford. It's really just touching the kids and letting them ask you questions. I, I don't really have an approach of lecturing them because I don't really feel like I can lecture them. I think they actually probably know more than most of us about a lot of things, but it's good to just get in front of them and let them ask you questions and, you know, kind of fill them with, you know, an opportunity and, and fuel them with, you know, hope and, and let them know that these things are possible. And I often, you know, when I see people who look like me, in these rooms, there's there's always that extra, you know, conversation, letting them know that, you know, I know you might have a hard time being authentic because it's not easy presenting every single day, but I'm able to do it and I hope that you can too. You sometimes have to direct that focus to that person that you see on that screen who is waiting for you to tell them that it's okay to exist. It's okay to wake up the way you do. It's okay to um, deal with the pressures that sometimes come from being the only person that looks like you in a room. But if you can just push past that 
and recognize your gifts and your talents, that you're going to be okay. And so, like I said, I think between these boards, which I recently were a part of, and I want to make sure I don't want to sound, again, anyway, um, pompous when I say that, but, you know, I work for these boards. You know, I've been a member of the Academy for 22 years. So it's not something that happened overnight, but when you join something, you want to make sure you understand it and that you join it because you want to affect real change. So seeing people like Belisha, um, who's had WEAN for, for years, you know, because she wanted to prepare, again, young women of color to be in these rooms that mattered. You know, when I started my PR agency, which I no longer run, when I did start it, it was because I didn't see a lot of Black young executives getting put in. So it was kind of like a training ground. Like, at least if I can teach you how to do something, maybe you can then go land a career somewhere else. And I'm happy to say that anyone who has wanted to, I think, work under me has been able to see themselves go into a corporate environment. But I think it's it's giving people the skill sets, the time. And, you know, if someone wants to call me for a coffee chat, I probably do about two of those a week. My assistant coordinator, right brain, Anna, is always like, again, I'm like, you kind of have to. Even if it's 15 minutes, that 15 minutes works for a lot of people. So I am happy that I'm able to do that. I'm happy I'm able to carve out time because I learned a lot from doing that, too. It's not just one way. It's, it's a lot to see what people are thinking, how they're viewing the music business. And again, and just you want to prepare the, gener- the next generation the only way you know how to. And the only way to know how to prepare them is to talk to them and communicate with them and show up for them. So I think those are examples of ways that I have given back. We've talked about your accomplishments and successful career, but who are some of the women? You mentioned some women earlier, Sylvia Rohn, Shanti Das. Who are some of the women in the industry that you consider mentors and want to give a shout out to? What did they do that stands out to you still today that supported you on your path forward? Oh, I can go on for days. But, you know, my mom, my mother is a strong, strong female, and she was an entrepreneur all her life. So that is something that when you are raised in a household with a mother and father who understand what it means to be an entrepreneur, that sticks with you. It's in your blood. But Sharon Hayward, she was the first female manager I ever saw. She was the manager to Brian McKnight. Gita Williams was another female manager that worked with JoJo. So that was someone who helped me in these, this transition of working with her. Like we were side by side. Um, you mentioned Shanti, you mentioned Sylvia. Um, Gail, I'm gonna shout you out, Anna Kessamudi, because again, it's how people treat you when you call them. You know, Gail, you are a legend. And so when you answer the phone and you took my call and you were sweet and you were kind, that, that matters because it lets you know that people who look like you on the other side of the phone wanna see you win. Um, Yvette Nosher, you know, she is still one of the best to ever do it. And she is generous and she is kind and she, you know, helps you navigate a lot of conversations from where she sits as a premier publicist and just advocate for, for niceness. You know, if that, if that could be her, her word is that she advocates just being nice. I, I feel like there's a list, but I want to say something about the tribe. I think it's often your mentors sometimes are your age group. You know, I have a great group of peers who are very successful within where they are. Nicole Johnson, Desmarquetta, who is at Revolt, Regima, who is at Spotify, you know, Erica, who's at SoundCloud, Caroline, who's at CAA. There's a group of women that I talk to literally every day. And the reason I say that your friends are your mentors is because they are seeing things from different sides, but they're also willing to talk to you. They're willing to tell you when you are, you're making mistakes and that you're wrong and that you need to be better, you know? And so that's my friends from college, you know, shot them out, Joni, Janita, whoever. And I don't really know if I want to say names because I'm scared I'm going to miss people. But what I want to get across is that outside of the people that are part of the music business from, like I said, Shanti to Sylvia, to Gail, to Nakessa, to, to all these people who I think have, have made me a better person. They've told me to slow down, you know, and, and listen, because Gail is like, slow down slow down. I'll get back to you. You know what I'm saying? Or Nakessa, I hear you. I hear your passion, but slow down. Like people have to tell you to slow down because 
it's 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 for your own benefit outside of the people that you work with that are saying to slow down it's it's your peers around you and this tribe that you build over time that want to see you win that become your mentors because they tell you the truth and they tell you when you need to just be okay with who you are like you're not dealing with imposter syndrome you know things are hard like we we all have different things in different places we're trying to navigate but i I really just want to say that, you know, when you have a strong group of independents around you and a strong group of leaders around you and people want to see you succeed, that's also mentorship. So there's different ways to look at that. And I would even say some people that I mentor, whether it's Chase Cheatham or, or Ashley Calloway, and I, I say those things because those, they, they approach me first as like, you're our big sister with the Spellman. You're going to help us out. And I'm kind of like, who do y'all think you are? <laughs> those moments let you remind yourself that you do have to reach back down and you have to reach up at the same time. It's, it's a simultaneous, you know, relationship with, with mentorship and being a mentee. No, I know. I just, one, one thing, Nikessa, you're referring to Nikessa Moody. Nikessa Moody. She was the first writer. That's when Serena said to me, and I go back to Serena Gallagher because she said, you know, I am a non-woman of color in the business. And there are going to be situations that you cannot, that I'm sorry, there's going to be situations that I can't navigate for you and that I can't speak to because I'm not a black woman. So I want you to meet some people that I think will help you in your matriculation to the business. And one of them was Nikessa Moody. And we met for lunch at Red Eye Grill and we were friends ever since. But it takes a leader like Serena to recognize her, what she saw as privilege as being a white executive at Motown, but also see that because of her privilege, she had to also give back to me in a way. And Tracy Miller, that was our team at the time. You know, I could say Vivian Lewitt, you know, who is at YouTube. She's, she's been great to me. Jody Gershon has been great to me. Like there's so many people that when you talk about allyship and truly understanding where you sit in culture, how you have to give back to the next generation, no matter what they look like. To close out in reverse, if, you know, say a woman listening to this wants to be your mentee, you talked about those 15 minute coffee sessions that you do. What advice would you give those women or what advice do you give your mentees who would like to see themselves walking the same path that you've carved out? Well, first, there's no same path to walk. So I definitely start the conversations often like that, because what you said is, is something that I think a lot of people do when they pick up the phone. They want to say, so can you tell me your journey? And it's, it's really hard to give advice based off your journey, because that's 22 years of a journey. What I normally ask them to do is take it back a second and, and, and tell me what they are experiencing and tell me what they feel that they're going through, because it's better for me to give them advice on what they're feeling than what I felt. Well, I mean, in talking about your journey, is there any advice that you would have given your younger self? Woo. Um, I think I learned the importance of being your authentic self early on um, and showing up for work was something that Sylvia Rohn definitely pushed in me. You know, you never know where you're going to end up. So be prepared for that. Now at this stage in my life, and I said this before and I'll say it again, it's really important to prepare for your family or potential family the way you prepare for your job or your promotion. We have to find a way to to reward ourselves in both ways, you know, and, and really think about body planning um, and, and making sure that you know your body health as a woman, especially as a woman of color. And I segue into that because of the documentary I worked on with Shaquita Lockley, which was Eggs Over Easy Black Female Fertility. I didn't know until in my 30s that Black women had fibroids five times more than anybody else. I didn't know that we died in, that we died in childbirth 2.5 times more. I didn't know that until recently. And I should have known that. You know what I'm saying? And I say that because if we don't 
prepare for our bodies the same way we prepare for our careers, you might, you might miss something. And again, being child-free is your decision. Having children is your decision. Everything is your decision. We said it's your uterus, do what you want with it, but you should know what it is and you should know what's going on. So I implore all women to know what's going on with your body and um, take a second to, to listen to it. We act like stress is okay and stress is not okay. So you have to figure out ways to remove that stress. You have to figure out ways to, to let go of those things that, that cause you to not rest at night, you know? Find ways to take care of yourself because if you don't do that, you won't be here to enjoy the fruits of your labor. A word, woo. All right. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you for the illuminating and insightful conversation. I learned more about you today. I'm so, and so jazzed by your hustle, girl. I just admire it so much. Thank you. Thank you.